This is an ABC podcast. Hi there and welcome to The Bookshelf. I'm Kate Evans and here's a question for you. And yes, it is one that we ask regularly here. What are the books that made you? Is there a reading experience that affirmed you, jolted you, shaped you in a particular way? Did it put you on a path or push you off one? It might be a book from childhood or your teenage years, those passionate years of reading, or it might have been last week or last year. These are the questions I put to a collection of writers at the recent Melbourne Writers' Festival. So come along to examine their shelf life. Hello and welcome to this event at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and on air and podcast for ABC RN. Abbas Nazari is with us, a New Zealander who came to that country as a refugee from Afghanistan. He's a Fulbright scholar specialising in security studies and his memoir is entitled After Tampa Hire Bus. Hello, good to be here everybody. Sarah Holland-Batt is a poet, essayist and academic, Professor of Literary Studies at the Queensland University of Technology and Writer-in-Residence at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney Uni at the moment. Her latest collection of poetry is The Jaguar. Sarah, hello. Hello. Maya Hodge is a Lardell and Yunkel woman, a writer, a poet and a curator whose work appears in many different places, including the In Between Two Worlds SBS anthology, and the collective This Mob book, Black Wattle, which combines poetry and other art forms. Maya, g'day. Hi, everyone. And Chloe Hooper is a novelist and writer of non-fiction, whose books include the novel A Child's Book of True Crime, the investigative piece The Tall Man, Death and Life on Palm Island, and her latest bedtime story. Hi, Chloe. Hello. Now, we will, I think, find out more about each of you as writers, but it's going to be through the prism of reading. So I'm going to begin by asking each of you to offer up one book that shaped you, and by chance, this is going to take us chronologically through a reading life. So let's begin with you, Abbas Nazari. What's the book you want to tell us about? That was such a hard question, but when I thought about it, the book that really stands out for me is a child's book called The Worst Band in the Universe by Graham Bass. Uh, the reason that book stands out for me is when I arrived to New Zealand as a, you know, a refugee off the Tampa, we couldn't speak a word of English. And so when we enrolled in primary school uh, in New Zealand and then uh, you know, we were in ESOL classes, that was one of the first books that I picked up off the, off the bookshelf in the uh, ESOL class, mostly because, if you know uh, Graham Bass's work, the illustrations are amazing. And so I couldn't read the words, to be honest. I just looked at all the pictures. And then later on, as we progressed and my English became fluent and I tested out of ESOL class, I remember picking up that book for the last time when we tested out of ESO and went mainstream and reading it word for word and then actually understanding the story there. What was it about that book? Was it, I mean, Graham Bass's work is often quite joyful. That's right. That book, is, it's that classic quintessential kind of child story where, you know, the protagonist, the hero of the story is, is faces an obstacle, faces a challenge and then, you know, goes in search of betterment in search of that, the, the, you know, trying to find purpose and meaning in life and then obviously come out the other end. 
And the thing, I think what resonated with me, as well as the beautiful illustrations, was actually uh, I saw myself in the character. So it's this band, it's the worst band in the universe, and their, their obstacle is very, very different. I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't read it. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, it resonated with me because, you know, we went through some obstacles to try and get to New Zealand, obviously. And so I saw a lot of myself in those pages. And I'm not musically gifted by any means. What about obstacles to reading, though? I think your, your dad was literate, but your mum wasn't? That's right. You know, and we, when we arrived to New Zealand uh, from Afghanistan, you know, having fled the Taliban, and we arrived to New Zealand, and we were on that boat, the Tampa, as, as many of you might recall, we were finally, thankfully and gratefully, resettled to New Zealand. And none of us could speak a word of English, but as you know, children, we soak it up really, really easily, right? And so we went to school, me and my siblings, and we kind of, you know, learned to stand up on our own feet very, very quickly. But for my parents, it was a different story. Dad was literate. You know, he, he had finished, like, maybe a couple of years of primary school education uh, back in Afghanistan. And he could read and write Farsi, his own mother tongue. But as is the case for so many rural women from Afghanistan, you know, the opportunity to get educated is just not there. So mum was illiterate. And so there's a beautiful passage in my book where I remember when we arrived to New Zealand and we had to kind of sign our documentation and write our names. That was actually the first time that mum had been asked for her signature. You know, first time picking up a pen and she had to mark a piece of paper and that was her permanent residency to New Zealand. And then her, her personal story of coming to New Zealand and then going to adult education and then reading and writing and now... I've got to say, she's a better reader and writer than Dad is, that's for sure. And, but you're right, that was a very moving moment in your book, so thank you for sharing that with us. Now, so Abbas gave us a story from childhood. Now, Sarah Holland-Batt, I think we're turning to your teenage years. What book did you want to offer up to us? Um, what is it and why did it have such an impact on you? So, funnily enough, the book that I'm going to offer up to you is a book that sort of mocks the kind of person that I've become. So, it's a book um, called Pale Fire by Nabokov. If anyone may have read it, it's a classic work of literature, but it's a book about poetry and, and academia. And so, the book takes a very unusual shape. It's a novel, but it starts, it pretends or looks like a critical introduction to a long poem. A little bit like, you know, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which was published with a list of annotations. That's what this novel looks like. So, it opens with an introduction, then there's a thousand or 999 line poem, and then the rest of the novel is footnotes to the poem. But the novel is a satire, and so the, the, the poet has died. The poet is an American poet called John Shade. That's the character who's written this, this poem. And this other character, Charles Kinboat, has somehow stolen the poem and published his own annotations to it. And so the novel kind of reads as an increasingly insane, bad misreading of this poem. And the poem is sort of... Um, Robert Frost-style campus poem, you know, very cosy poem about winter in America and domestic life and, and the death of the poet's daughter. But this deranged kind of, kind of commentator who's stolen the poem reads into it something that's just completely not there, this insane story about a king from a country that doesn't exist. And so it's this hilarious novel, you know, about misreading. Um, and I just think the feat of that novel to create a kind of fictional poet who really sounds 
like Robert Frost and sounds like all of those American poets of that kind of era. Um, and then to create this sort of deranged narrator trying to give us a reading of the poem, to me just blew my mind. I had no concept that a novel could do that. And when I encountered it, I actually loved the poem. You know, I think the poem itself is really quite a beautiful poem. Um, and when bearing in mind that Nabokov wrote it in his fifth language, English was the fifth language that he learnt to read, because he grew up in Russia and then spoke French and a number, another, number of other languages before he came to English. When you consider that kind of feat, I just think it's, it's a masterpiece. Now, ironically, I've become a professor of poetry <laughs> and a poet. And so, you know, I think I, I, rem I remain like, in awe of the book, but have a great affection for it too, because it sort of, it keeps you humble as a critic, as a poet, to read it and reminds you of all the, the ways you can kind of go wrong as well. But I'm in awe about what that suggests about you as a reader, because as you talk about that book from 1962, now as a professor of literature, I can see your analysis of it, but you first read that as a teenager. So tell us about that teenage reading self and how it hit you. How so, did you come to it even? Yeah, I came to it because I just discovered poetry in high school. I lived in America, so I did my high school in the States, in Denver, and I was very lucky. I had this incredible high school English teacher who prescribed me, prescribed, hilarious word, but, you know, gave me all of these suggestions of, of poets to read, of novels to read, and so I'd been really immersed in mostly American poetry, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, Dickinson, that kind of stuff. I was very lucky to encounter those poems so at that pivotal kind of age, and so I just discovered poetry and, and thought of it as the most kind of serious literary endeavour. And I'd also just read Lolita and so I was really interested to read other novels of Nabokov. And then I discovered Pale Fire and I thought, oh my God, poetry can be this figure of total satire and, and ridiculousness as much as it can be the great literature that I was kind of reading in, in English class. So it was just the right book at the right time. And Having said that, though, I didn't understand all of it at the time, you know. I probably got half of the jokes, and I think I'm still learning to get the jokes. The older I get, when you reread a book, you do discover new things in it, don't you? And you find things where you think, oh, my God, that's hilarious, I missed that. And it's that kind of novel that, that really asks for and rewards lots of rereading. I love the way that this conversation already is taking us through different ways of reading and the impact of, well, of schools and teachers as well. Mm. So I feel like we're building up a complex bookshelf already. So we've moved from childhood to teenage years, and I think we're moving into reading as an adult now with you, Maya Hodge. What's the book you're going to offer up to us? I also found this very hard to choose one book. Um, oh, it's impossible. I'm glad nobody asked me. <laughs> Um, my book I chose after a lot of consideration was Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. Growing up in Mildura, our local bookshop was amazing, but it didn't have every single title that, you know, you could be able to branch into. So I, um, when I moved to Melbourne, I was like, fantastic. I can go shopping and, like, buy lots of books and look at what's coming out at the moment. And it was the first book I read by a black woman about, you know, science fiction, about dystopias. And her book opened up my mind to how we think of what dystopia is and what science fiction is to black and brown folks across the world. Because, you know, we, we live in these dystopias. We're living it right now in a, um, you know, a colonial state. You know, my people live it every day, so... While I was reading it, I found it very harrowing 
it was relentless, but it had this sort of strength of the main character. Um, he was a young woman, 15, she was started in the book, and as she grew up and grew up until she was about 18. And um, the struggle she had to go through and the survival was very inspiring for me. Yeah, and that was a book that really stuck with me. And I think it's a book I have to reread as well because it was so harrowing. Tell us more yeah. about what it means to see versions of yourself and your life in books or not to find them. What has that meant to you in your reading life? It's been great. I mean, the, the new wave of um, First Nations authors that are coming out now, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have that growing up. And so I'm just so excited to see people like Jazz Money and Ellie Cobby Eckerman and, um, you know, people like Evelyn Araluen to look up to and to guide me in my writing as well is really important. And, you know, it's the thing for me, I... I don't usually read authors who aren't, who aren't black or who aren't um, a person of colour because I just, I don't see myself reading books other than these women, these powerful women, so it's very um, important to me. Now, Chloe Hooper, I think like Maya, we're going to hear about a book that you read in your early 20s. So far, all the books we've discussed have been fiction in some way or another, I guess how we categorise Poetry is a complicated one, but what are you going to add to this pile of ours? Okay, I'm going to add The Journalist and the Murderer by the astonishing Janet Malcolm, um, an American non-fiction writer who, who passed away last year. And I read this as a graduate student in my early 20s in, in um, New York. And it was like a, a kind of lightning bolt. And I still open, open it up and find that it's, um, you know, her sentences are, are electric. And it was just so, it's so compelling and so psychological and so interested in the ethics of, of storytelling. Yeah, and I, I love it. Tell us more about that because... She's quite a confronting writer in a way. That's right, absolutely. What's her line on journalism? Well, I mean, it, you know, it opens with this famous, famous line, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what he's going, what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. <laughs> there we go. And so what has that idea done to you? How have you tested your own writing, your own non-fiction writing against that? Well, so this book is, it's a, you know, a really remarkable book. It, it involves a case between a, a true crime writer uh, whose name is, is uh, Joe McGuinness, who wrote a book called Fatal Vision about a doctor, Jeffrey MacDonald, who had, you know, is in, is in jail for killing his wife and children. And um, McGuinness actually joined his defence team and, and sat through the trial, appearing to be uh, McDonald's friend, and then wrote this book about the, the slow-creeping realisation that actually this man is a, is a uh, psychopath and it was a, a bestseller. And later, McDonald successfully sues McGuinness for a kind of breach of contract and 
So then Malcolm comes along and just with this sort of surgical precision sort of analyzes each person and their relationships. How has that tested me? I guess um, I think I really admire that line and I think that it's true of this in this particular case. I think that there is a sort of rhetorical flourish to it which, um, you know, doesn't actually describe every uh, encounter between a, a writer and their subject but I think that it's often very kind of you're, you're in really complex moral territory all the time and I love the way that Malcolm is alive to every sort of nuance in, in this in when she's writing this book. Because she is also famously a biographer, so she wrote the biography of um, Sylvia Plath. She also writes a lot about memory and photography as well. And some of that ends up being about the sort of intimacy of the subject and of research. And so I wonder when you wrote something like The Tall Man, whether you, how much you had those sort of ethical questions about the intimacy of research and the interviews that you have to do and so on, how much they were playing in your mind as you wrote The Tall Man? Well, I mean, I, my first novel was actually a child's book of true crime. So it, in a way, it was a sort of satire of a true crime novel and the way that um, these these stories operate. It's 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 what's interesting is our obsession with with these crimes and but within particular types of crimes. So and I don't actually think that there there are sort of certain elements of analysis in that that novel that kind of stand up to you know scrutiny. But I think that the the truth is in the tall man and also in the arsonist stories about crime actually are, are more often stories of structural disadvantage and stories of dysfunction that are about class and, and privilege and unpicking those stories. They're not kind of like crimes of passion, which is a sort of glorified way to describe domestic violence, but far more complex. And yet I actually believe that these are stories that need to be that do need to be told. And certainly the um, complexity of inequality and so on is something that you address in The Tall Man as well. But I should say too that on RN and at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, I'm Kate Evans here with guests Chloe Hooper, Maya Hodge, Sarah Holland-Batt and Abbas Nazari. Now, you're all writers, but you're also revealing yourself to us as readers as we talk about shelf care. But Sarah Holland-Batt, talk about bit more about how hard it was to make this selection as you try to define yourself as a poet through the, the books that had shaped you. It's impossible. I think because poetry is all intended to be reread. You know, I think the question we were posed was, you know, a book that you return to and reread. And in, in a sense, that's my entire library. You know, that, that's what the poem is. It's, it's not a text that you understand fully the first time you read it. And, you know, all poems that I love, all poets that I, that I enjoy are poets where it takes you some time to kind of work your way through the meaning of a poem as you see it. You know, I'm most interested probably in language that I don't fully understand the first time I come across it. Those are the sorts of books that I particularly love. And so to be asked, you know, a, a particular text or something, I could have given you like three anthologies of favourite poems. And in a way, probably for me, 
a poem lives in my head more fully than a novel or a work of non-fiction in that if you know a poem well and you love a poem, you can know the whole thing by heart. You can carry it with you. You can recite it, you know. And I think that kind of intimacy is something that poetry really invites. So it was a really difficult question for me because I think... You know, I live with those poems that I love and return to all the time. And so it's not so much always a whole book either. You know, sometimes it's just one poem in a poet's volume that you want to pull down the book and, and read again and again. That question of recitation is interesting because, as you say, you might be able to speak out loud a whole poem mm. that you love, whereas if we have books or novels that have shaped us, we might have a line mm. or we might have a quote somewhere. Um, I feel like I carry them with me but can't necessarily say them out loud. So, I mean, as you remember poems, do you also speak them aloud? Sometimes. It's funny, when my, da my dad passed away two years ago and um, he happened to die the week that the country went into lockdown and so Unfortunately, we couldn't have a funeral. We couldn't, I couldn't even have a hug from a friend. I was up in Brisbane. And so it's not a normal way to grieve. And so I, was, I live alone and I was just in my apartment with my hundreds of books and nobody to really, you know, have a hug from or have, you know, do that work of remembering that you usually do in conversation. And so found myself just reading poetry a lot. And there was a particular poem by the British poet Geoffrey Hill that I, I'd been asked to do one of those podcasts where you have to read a poem out loud and I didn't feel like doing it. I didn't feel like doing anything much, but chose that poem. And in the act of recording it on my iPhone for this podcast, I, I sort of, it got in my head and I kept sort of returning to these particular lines. And so I did sit down and read it to myself probably every couple of days for the first month. And it was a great comfort. It was almost, it probably for a person of faith, you know, would have been something like a prayer. Um, and poems are a kind of form of that. You know, it's not just about the idea. It's its particular expression in those particular words. And when you read them and read them, they can become kind of talismanic to you, you know. And so, yeah, on occasion I do read them out loud. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking, could I recite it? Probably not, under the pressure of telling the anecdote. Don't worry, but, I'm not going to put you on the you spot. You know, um, but probably, I, you know, probably a good part of it now is just up there without trying. That whole question of um, oral storytelling traditions and the sort of poetry and rhythm of language, Abbas Mazari, how much is that part of the storytelling traditions that you grew up with? Afghan culture, like Indigenous cultures around the world, is a story, an oral tradition. And so where I'm from, where I come from, in the central highlands of Afghanistan, we lived in a very isolated village, you know, 1,500 metres above sea level, surrounded by mountains, and stories are passed down generations to generations, all orally. And it is a tradition that I didn't think would come in handy when I was asked to write my book after the Tampa, but... You know, I, for me, my book was a lockdown project and there were times I'd be sitting at a cafe or sitting in a park and, and, and writing this thing. And all that came to my mind was when I was a little kid in Afghanistan, you know, where we were, we didn't have running water or electricity or anything like that. So our form of entertainment would be, you know, Dad, who was a truck driver, and he would go out and venture outside of our village and go out to these distant cities on week-long runs and come back. And he'd tell us stories about the world outside. You know, he'd bring stories about the city 
and news of, of what was happening out there. And when, when I thought back on that, and I thought about my own writing style. I'm not much of a writer. After the Tampa's my first book, and um, I thought, wow, listening to those stories has allowed me to now be able to tell my own story and do it genuinely, authentically, and with my own voice. And um, it's come along really, really well. So oral storytelling is something that I hope you know can be passed on to my kids and other generations as well. And sometimes that oral storytelling and those traditions can also be transferred to the page for us as readers. And so, Maya Hodge, your writing, you wrote a piece for the SBS Emerging Writers Competition and a story called Binion. Can you tell us about that word and that story? Sure. So, I, yeah, I relate a lot to what you were saying, um, Abbas, about oral traditions and about language. You know, your language isn't written down, it's spoken to you and that's how you embody it. And so when it's taken away from you and you have to reclaim it again, that's a whole nother journey. And so when I was writing, I say Bidnyan, which means woman in my language, in Lero. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but the thing that, you know, us mob always say is that even if you mispronounce it, you're still saying it. So you're still embodying that language again. And so what did you... Because in that story, you've got words in language and mm. then stories that emerge from it. Mm. Tell us more about the, the process, the story that you're wanting to tell by using those, those words. Yeah, I, get, I got a lot of inspiration from um, Tara Jean Winch, who judged the prize, and the way that she used language in her book. Because when I started to sit down and write about my story... I had a lot of memories sort of being mingled in my head. And when I was putting it on the page, it, it didn't make sense for what I was trying to say or like sort of the, chrono, the chrono, chronological order of my um, memories. Um, and so I used language to try and filter those memories. And that was a way of also honouring my great-grandmother, Ida, who was a, um old little speaker and was one of the last old Lerl speakers on the island. So, and she contributed a lot to the, um, the Lerl dictionary. So when I was reading the dictionary and trying to make sense of all these memories of my childhood, it felt like I was having this connection with her again. And thank you too for mentioning Tara June Winch's novel, The Yield, which mm. uses a sort of dictionary structure there with language. And it also made me think of the way, even in Melissa Lukashenko's novel, Too Much Lip, there's language in there and Kim Scott in That Dead Man's Dance. So I feel like mm. um, Australian literature is being transformed by our relationship to um, Indigenous languages as well. But Chloe Hooper, if I could return to you. Now, your latest book, Bedtime Story, I mean, it's all about the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell children, but it's also about the really hard-to-tell stories that end up having an impact on us. Can you talk about Bedtime Story and what it is you wanted to do with that book? Uh, well, my partner, um, the writer Don Watson, was diagnosed with an aggressive leukaemia in 2018 and uh, our sons were six and three and I guess it seemed to me that a story would uh, make a path through this forest for us 
and I went searching for a children's book that I hoped would explain explain what was happening to them. And it kind of sent me on a quest through children's literature that, that made me really think about the the purpose and the power of storytelling for children and and how we we've framed you know throughout um, the history of children's literature tales around mortality and, and grief and you know s- stories are the way that we you know a, a society gives their source code down to their young and that's where we sort of you know we embed the most important information for those who are most important to us so there we go and part of it seems to me to be talking about storytelling as hope and storytelling for the future and storytelling to get through things did you find things that were reassuring things that were powerful in that children's storytelling tradition things that were useful for you well, I think that um, I think children's stories have to be hopeful, and I think we serve them with with enchantment, with a belief in the miraculous. So even if a, even if a, a children's fairy story is dark, you know, sometimes it's almost to highlight that sort of glint of the of a, of a miracle. Uh, there is treasure, whether or not it's kind of physical or, you know, they find gold or the reader finds something hopeful. But I guess that storytelling is just, prefer- you know, I mean, it's um, we're wired for it, but a story survives even if the storyteller doesn't. So in the act of telling a story, it implies continuation. Yes, and it's a, it's a very powerful book if you haven't read it. Abbas, given that anybody looking at what happened to you and your family, um, you know, and the 433 other refugees who were there on the Tampa, and you are only very young, what, seven when you left Afghanistan, I think, are there books that you've found that represent, that sort of explore what happened to you? Are there children's books, perhaps, or other adult books that make sense of your experience for you? I think um, when I was writing my book, one thing that really hit me was how the whole Tampa affair and the Tampa saga, and actually the moment you mentioned the Tampa to many Australians and Kiwis, people are like, oh, I remember that. And the image that is conjured up in their mind is of the Tampa, that giant container ship out there in the Indian Ocean. Hot. And, there's, and hot but there's no face or name to that story, right? It was all so surgically uh, curated by, you know, the Howard government to kind of dehumanise these people because obviously it's in the middle of a 2001 general election. So when I look back on those photos and the articles, there was nothing about, from our perspective, there was nothing that had a name or a face to it. And so when I started writing my book, I was like, wow, this is finally a chance for us to tell our side of the story, where we're from, why did we flee, how did we end up in the Indian Ocean? And it's, it, the book is written from my first-person account, right? I was a little boy at the time, and it goes in three parts, our life in Afghanistan, the journey, and then life in New Zealand, what we've been up to since. When I was writing that, and to answer your question, I drew inspiration from not refugee stories per se, but stories of people out there in search of a better life, 
in search of meaning and purpose and overcoming obstacles. Like for us, here we are living in our little old village in the middle of Afghanistan, the Taliban take over, we're an ethnic and religious minority, there's no place for us to live there, and so we get booted out of our own country, we live in a refugee camp, you've got no options, you look for another way out, and it's that story of overcoming life's obstacles and putting your head down, getting to work, and our story ended up, you know, pretty happy. We were rescued by New Zealand. Half of us were resettled to little old Christchurch, New Zealand, which is my hometown now. And then you think that's the end of the story, that cool, the happy ending is you arrive to New Zealand, that's it. But sadly, it wasn't a happy ending because more than half of those asylum seekers got imprisoned on Nauru for five years. And that's, that's their story. And that wasn't a happy story at all. So I tried to wrap up both. Like you mentioned before, you want to write a story with a happy, hopeful ending, but I also didn't want to airbrush or highlight over the fact that we were one of the lucky ones and that for more than 200 of us, they spent five years on Nauru. Yes, and, and sadly you were also there the day of the terrible killings in Christchurch, which you write about in your book too. That's right. You know, the, the mosque shootings in my hometown of Christchurch, little 28-year-old man from Grafton, New South Wales of all places, come and killed 51 people in my hometown. That was one of the darkest days. You know, and, I, and I wondered about whether I should include that in the book, uh, but I thought, you know, I knew personally about six of the victims and, I, and I, was, I wanted their memory to be included in there. And like I mentioned, you know, the book could have ended really like, look, happy, happy times, we made it to New Zealand, good. But there, there are elements there that I, I wanted the, the readers to just take away and, and really think about. This is ABC RN's The Bookshelf with me, Kate Evans, and with guests Abbas Nazari, Sarah Holland-Batt, Chloe Hooper and Maya Hodge. And so we have, I mean, we have come to a point in the discussion where we are talking about dark stuff and grief for everybody. And Sarah, that's something that you have written about a lot um, with your poetry and with your essays as well um, after the death of your dad. Were there other things on your bookshelf that helped you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, th I think so. Again, mostly poetry, I have to say. Um, so my dad, my dad had very difficult experiences in aged care. He had Parkinson's for 20 years and dementia for the last five years of his life. It was an unhappy bookend to an otherwise, you know, quite beautiful part of his life. And and I felt reluctant, I think, to write about that for a really long time because I sort of thought it wasn't the proper subject for poetry somehow, that it was too confronting, too personal and raw. And I think you don't want a poem to just be an outpouring of your own feelings. You actually want it to be something meaningful for the reader who comes along and finds it. So it took me a long time to try and work out that this, these actually were subjects that were good and important to write out write about in poems um, and I came I came to kind of feel that through a few collections but in particular one by the American poet Sharon Olds um, who's a wonderful kind of confessional poet and that's probably somewhat the style of my own po poetry too in that I draw on my life and she wrote a beautiful book 
called the father about about the last kind of weeks and days of her father's life as he was dying of cancer. And each poem is just like this sort of micro moment. You know, in a way, when someone's dying, it feels simultaneously very quick in that it's just somehow a week and then they're gone. But also that week feels like 10 years in terms of how long the moments feel and, you know, the kind of, I suppose, the confrontations you're having in your mind with death. And... Yeah, her her book, when I read it and then reread it and then read it again after Dad's death, did gave me some impetus and momentum. And I think good poems are about confronting the difficult. It's not easy to write about those things. To write a good poem of grief is very hard. But it was important to me, I think, to, to witness that because I think that form of witnessing of pain and grief and finding a language for something that feels almost beyond language is that that is really like that's the work of poetry and I think ultimately even though they were difficult poems to write they were a sort of act of love for dad in in working through those experiences in language and funnily enough all those years that I thought oh this is not this is not really the subject matter that I want to write poetry about after having written that book uh, it's amazing the number of people for whom that's resonated for who've either had loved ones who've had Parkinson's or dementia or in aged care to find some language for that because it can be a very lonely experience because we don't talk about it well as a society. We don't talk about ageing and aged care often. It's kind of a taboo. People like to pretend it, you know, it doesn't really happen and prolong thinking about it. And so it's been really quite moving, actually, the stories that people have shared in return, you know, of their own parents, of their own parents' death, of their own grief. And I think that's really what, you know, it's it's taught me a lesson belatedly that my, my sort of presumption that no one would want to read about it was, was wrong, actually. And a reminder, too, of how complex the reading process can be and the and what it can offer if you aren't part of a religious tradition. But I also liked the... Um, the fact that you said there it doesn't have to be a literal exploration of it. And that takes me back to Maya, I guess, Maya Hodge, in talking about reading about trauma and dispossession and other things through something like speculative fiction. So can you talk more about how reading speculative fiction makes sense of the experience that you're living? Yeah, I guess... Um Side note, I had like an hour's sleep last night. <laughs> so my brain and my mouth is struggling a You're little bit. You're doing just fine. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I, I just bought This All Come Back Now, edited by Michaela Saunders, uh, and I'm really keen to read it. So I don't know how to... I guess I, I grew up reading a lot of sort of young adult spec fic and lots of fantasy and that was really great because it was a way for me to escape growing up in such a small town experiencing you know small town racism things like that at such a young age books for me and for a lot of young black fellas is a way for us to be able to escape and be able to go outside of where we are which is why I encourage a lot of young people to read and write and tell their stories so um I still need to read the book <laughs> and I'm still jumping into that genre a little bit more that's I guess why I sort of brought up Octavia's book because that was such a moment of me of just sort of going wow there's such an amazing array of writers out there talking about these stories um because they're not 
they're not fixed in like a future. We're living it now. It's from the past. And this idea of non-linear time of this circular motion plays a lot in sort of spec fic, I feel. And a lot of black writers are uplifting those stories now. And that's exciting for me. So I hope I answered that. Yes, and also it, it feels like it's a genre that is being transformed. Um, mm. Speculative fiction, fantasy fiction, writers like Nettie Okorafor, who mm. writes um, Afrofuturism, mm. and N.K. Jemison, the American writer, and then seeing what's happening with Australian First Nations writers and that collection by Michaela Saunders. That's so exciting. Now, I do have another question for you all about something else that you've, re you've read and loved. What one might do is leave that to the end and use this as an opportunity to hear from you in the audience, bearing in mind that I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to offer up a book that has had a huge impact on you um, as you ask a question as well. Um, so who would like to start? Hi, hello. Um, my name's Ellie and thank you so much to the panel for all your thoughts and insights um, so far. Um, I guess I'll start by saying the book that probably had the most impact on me was um, Aldous Huxley's Island. Um, and I really liked what you said about speculative fiction and fantasy about kind of imagining, I guess, a different world, a better world. I would say that I'm actually from the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne and um, we love books in the faculty. Um, so much so that we actually run a program called 10 Great Books, which is nearly a decade of that program actually. And I would love to hear um, what the panel maybe has to say about what makes a book great or maybe what gives a book longevity, um, especially uh, given up until relatively recently, the canon has kind of been uh, synonymous with uh, dead white men. Uh, so I wonder what kind of books we would still be reading in 100 years. Oh, no, that's a hard one. What makes a book great? Who wants to tackle that? I can start. Um there's a book called After the Tampa by Abbas Nazari. <laughs> no, I, I kid. No, but I think for me personally, signed copies at the back, by the way. Um, I think for me, the, the, the stories that resonate across time and cultures are always stories of uh, any person going through a struggle finding themselves, finding purpose, and then coming out the other end, sometimes in one piece, sometimes in multiple pieces. And it doesn't always have to be a happy ending. Like, for me, the, as a child, the books that I read, you know, things like The Alchemist or The Little Prince, uh, those kind of books, you know, cross divides, cross cultures, cross time, because we all see ourselves in them, always in search whether it's the meaning of life or a bit of purpose or just trying to get over the obstacles that life throws in our way. I think those are the greatest stories. That's what I, that's what I consider to be a great book, apart from my own. <laughs> Chloe, do you want to have a go? Well, I'm, I'm struck in our conversation that we've, we've traversed children's books, the Graham Bass and The Little Prince, but also poetry, and that the links between poetry and children's books because there is a sort of distillation of um, a story stripped back and I think, you know, where the wild things are might be kind of 200 words or something and yet that's, um, you know, a book that so many people know and remember. So I guess I'd make a case for just that those, those books, apart from, of course, 
Abbas's book, um, <laughs> that, that they're just those ones that are timeless in terms of the, of the language, just the sort of a simplicity that, that still kind of, you know, cuts through, like Janet Malcolm's amazing prose. <laughs> And it also reminds me of a book that it's a non-fiction work and it's almost a manifesto by the uh, children, English children's book writer Catherine Rundle. And she has written a book with the wonderful title of Why You Should Read Children's Books Even Though You Are So Old and Wise. <laughs> and I can see that there is another question coming just here. And I might do that before the rest of you guys respond. I think there's a question. My name is Megan. Um, my book... I have two, actually, by the same author. Uh, Joan Didion's uh, A Year of Magical Thinking and Blue Nights was a fantastic book, two fantastic books about uh, extreme loss and grief that happen in great pounds of time. And uh, I definitely resonated with that. My father had an accident three years ago where he fell on his head and became quadriplegic. And I was looking to uh, explore that grief where I was potentially going to lose him, but then also moving on with life. He's still here with us today, though, and I'm one of his carers, and I'm very proud to do that. Um, but my question for the panel was, when you're writing about things that are so personal but are so tied to your integral character and person, how do you navigate giving away so much while still preserving what you have? Well, that's a really great question. Thank you so much. Um, that The vulnerability, I guess. Maybe, Sarah, would you like to answer that one? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think... You've got to accept that people will make whatever they want of what you write. You know, you, you sort of lose control in a sense of your own story when you when you turn it into art. And I think I wrestled with that a bit, particularly because I was writing, you know, I'm really sorry I have to say to hear about what you're going through with your dad. And it's caring is a beautiful thing and should be valued, I think, in our in our, you know, community and culture more than it is. And I think writing about someone in that state of vulnerability you have to wrestle with your own personal ethics to kind of pick up, you know, on some of the things that Chloe's been saying as well. With writing, when I was writing about Dad, I was writing about him beyond the point that he could read the poems and give them an okay, writing about him after he'd passed away as well. Um, you know, you have to kind of wrestle with it, but I think that there's an internal kind of sense of rightness or wrongness. And then you also have to sort of slightly separate yourself from the artwork and remember that it's that you're writing, you know, a, a piece of literature, whether it's a book, an essay, a poem, that sits outside of that person, you know, and, and in a way you have to give yourself permission to make it a work of literature, which might involve moving events together. You know, I don't think poetry, people read it as though it's a true thing. They read it as though it's exactly as it happened. Almost none of the poems are exactly as they happened. And I think in writing, you give yourself permission to turn it into something else. And through that process, I think, you gain a little bit of distance from it and you can see the artwork as slightly separate from the life events. But it is tricky and it's got to ultimately sit well with, with you as a writer, you know, and I think when you've got living subjects, there's an added layer of complication, you know. And also it means, of course, you have the right to not answer this question on stage if you don't want to. So, Chloe or Abbas, you can comment or not on that question. It's up to you. That's a really good question. And, and when I was approached to write this book, I really thought about are people interested in knowing our stories? Whatever happened to those people on the boat? Where are they now? Are they proud Afghans? Are they proud Kiwis? Are they proud Australians? And I really thought long and hard about two things. 
did I want my story out there for the public to judge? And I talked to my partner, Jen, I said, look, I'm putting in my blood, sweat and tears into this book. What if it comes out and it sells like 10 copies? You know, there's, there's that too as well. But I thought long and hard about it. And the answer I reached is the reason I'm, I want to write this book and tell our story from the refugee perspective is because, sadly, the general misconception about refugees is that they're not a good fit that they don't like this country, that sadly, for whatever reason, through politics, through media coverage, it's a generally very negative, negative misconception about refugees. So when I wrote this book, all I did was like, look, this is the life we had. This is why we had to flee. This is why we did what we did. And now that we're in New Zealand, these are the lives that we're living. These are the stories that we have to tell. And for me to just say that in those words, and then for it to be received so well, it answered that question for me that there are people who are interested and who want to know the real story about refugees. Yeah. Chloe, did you want to respond or not? I, I think that, you know, when we're talking about grief and caring and refugees and escape from a, a, a small town and racism, I mean, these are personal stories, but they're also universal. And, and this is you know, these are the factors that make books resonate and make them them live on. And I suppose that there's a sort of, there's a political and a personal use to telling these stories. I think that for um, the authors, I mean, Maya, this might, you might relate to this, the idea that actually by, you know, all of us by writing painful things down, Sarah, you mentioned that sort of there's a distance. So actually you can sort of have the, uh, as a writer, the the illusion of controlling a very kind of complicated and, and painful part of your life by sort of burnishing the sentences and putting them in the right place. And actually it's almost a, a mode of, of, of slightly having a, a degree more distance from something that is actually really complex personally. Yes, and that hits us all so very hard as readers too. And I'd actually like to finish this just in the last couple of minutes we have by returning to you all as readers. So I'd love to hear about something that you've read recently that has had an impact on you. Maya Hodge, what would you like to tell us about? I've had the pleasure of reading a lot of books during my scribe internship. <laughs> and one of those books was Black and Blue by Ronnie Gorey. And it's incredible. Everyone should, everyone in the room needs to read this book. It stayed with me. Thank you. Um, Sarah? Yeah, it's funny. The book that I'm going to recommend, I think, picks up on a lot of the threads that we were talking about, and particularly Chloe's comments about writing as a form of controlling an otherwise uncontrollable experience. So the book I recommend is by Anne Boyer and it's called The Undying. It's it's a memoir of her cancer and it won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction a couple of years ago. And it's a very beautiful book. It reminds me if anyone's read Susan Sontag's Illness as Metaphor, it's kind of a, a response to that, trying to find a language that will help the writer try and control this experience of being diagnosed and living with uh, a really aggressive form of cancer. It's a really beautiful book and it's sort of structured in these quite fragmentary, really poetic essays, you know, so it's something you can dip in and out of. It's quite an intense book, but I think it's just stunning, really, really beautiful book and a book that anyone can, can enjoy. Chloe Hooper? Uh, I've bought props along. I mean, I'm, you know, so... <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I um, recently read Fury by Catherine Heyman, and I just think this is a stunning book. It's a, a real page turner. Um, it's written so beautifully with with um, just humour and insight, but with Fury as well. And it's about women and class and becoming in Australia and I, I really recommend it. And Abbas Nazari? Uh, I've just returned from uh, living and working in the United States for the last three years. So I was there from 2019, 20 to 21. And in that three-year time period, if you look at what's happened in that state, in, the, in that country, it's been incredible. You know, the, the Trump years, the pre-election, the post-election, the civil unrest and, and how just culturally that country, that society is starting to like tear itself apart a little bit. It was a fascinating time to be there. I was doing a master's in security studies at Georgetown and everything that we were studying in class was playing out in the streets. And a book that I'm currently reading is The War on the West by Douglas Murray. It gives you a different perspective on what might be happening out there on campuses and everything like that and the culture wars that are only just beginning. And I think um, it, it, what I saw there in the last three years, I feel like might emerge in Australia, New Zealand and the rest of the world as well. So it's an interesting book, that's for sure. And so what we've heard here, I think, are the ways in which reading itself can be political, personal, can rip your heart out, can make you think and can make us reassess our histories and our place in the world. So here at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and of part, as part of ABC RN's podcast and broadcast, I'm Kate Evans, here with writers Abbas Nazari, Sarah Holland-Batt, Maya Hodge and Chloe Hooper. Please do thank them. Next time on The Bookshelf, Cassie McCullough and I begin a whole summer of reading, both the best books of the year as well as bookish conversations you haven't heard before. Find us on the ABC Listen app and don't miss a single page. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.